Today I welcome Claire Robinson, headmistress at Homegrain School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss managing change within a school, investing in continuing professional development, not training, living into your school ethos, and why every school should have a farm and a farm shop. I want to talk about you and your leadership in Home Grange. You've been ahead at Home Grange for 12 years now. Congratulations. In this time, you've extended the school to take pupils to GCSE when it previously only went up to the age of 13. Let's talk about change management. How do you get a community on board with such an enormous transition? I think, first of all, it's going to be through your, your own enthusiasm as well and your own vision. And you've got to be able to articulate that. Any change is driven by emotional attachment that people have for what you already have. So any change that you're going to bring in has got to be done in a very a delicate way. The key has got to be communication. And the timing of that communication, I think, is, is absolutely crucial. And invite people to contribute to the solutions that you're looking for. I think you've got to be committed to your vision and ensure that it's very clear and that you can articulate that. You also have to be flexible and be able to listen to others as well. Was it driven by a natural demand in the area? And were there varying levels of enthusiasm within your community in response to this change? Yes, there was, because as a school, we were we went to seven and eight, but we year seven and eight, but we had very small numbers in year seven and eight. I mean, the first year I came, I had three students in year seven. So the market was changing quite dramatically. And also the parent body was changing. So a lot of our parent body were two working parents and they were looking for a day school. They weren't looking for boarding schools. And the number of students that we had had move into the 13 plus market was still very, very small. We looked at what was around and this side of the M4, there wasn't a co-ed day school. So that's where my starting point came, talking to parents about they believed that they liked what we had and they believed that's what they wanted for their children going up to 16, but they couldn't stay because they needed to move on either at 11 and the danger was they couldn't stay to 13 because they wouldn't, they wouldn't be guaranteed a place in many secondary schools because secondary schools were coming down to take students at 11, many were, and particularly the day schools, the market was changing and we had to adapt to that market change. Yeah. And, you know, driving any amount of change, but particularly when obviously opening new year groups, extending your community, it's not all plain sailing. What were the most difficult hurdles and how did you overcome them? I think the most difficult hurdles people, because you have to acknowledge the feelings, as I said earlier, when you're managing that a lot of their decisions or their reasons for either wanting to do it or not wanting to do it are driven by emotion. One of our governors had been a pupil, a parent, and a governor of the school. So he had a memory of what the school was, lots of nostalgia around what the school he believed the school should be. So it was trying to work with them acknowledging that and ensuring that I had answers for what they were going to pose to us before the question came. I think to do that, I had to get other people in, had to bring in some resources to enable us to do that effectively, to support the, the reasoning behind it as well, to help drive that change. What tips would you have for other school leaders who are going through periods of transition? First of all, get some advocates on board, speak to people, bring in those resources to help drive that change. We didn't make the change decision overnight. We visited other schools to hear both positives and negatives. We enlisted the support of external researcher who came and canvassed the views of stakeholders and potential stakeholders, future stakeholders as well. 
don't give up, I think, really, because you will hit brick walls. And don't stop learning and listening to others because you might have a very clear plan of how you want it to be. It's not exactly how you think it's going to be. It is a journey. It's not a destination that you're looking at. You want something for long term. It's not an overnight solution. And even when you get there, you're still on that journey and you're still going to hit hurdles all the way through. My chair of governors, my chair of finance and my chair of education voted against going to 16. The board voted for it. So... And you have to manage, again, different people at different layers that are connected to the school. But, you know, what you do is you, you, you stay true to your vision. Um, I think it's massively important to get advocates, to have clarity of direction, but also to recognize that there will be moments of change that you have to adapt quickly because, you know, the landscape that we've seen in the last 18 months was not even, you know, it could never be predicted, but we've all had to adapt. And the same with any big growth plans, things will come up, but stay true, stay positive, stay focused and get the people on side. I think it's really great advice. What other kind of change plans have you got going on in the Robinson? For the future or, or currently? Yeah, no, currently and the future. Yeah, I'd love to hear what, what your plans are because you've obviously gone through this banner change. And the thing is, what, once you've got the bug for change, the bug for change doesn't go and you think, okay, what's next? So what is next? Okay, well, I think it's about constantly looking you can always improve, can't you? And our school has gone. I, there's 200 students when I started. We've got 650 students now. That's been a massive amount of change. And the school is a totally different place. And during that period, we've had to do some enforced changes because the growth happened far quicker than we had ever anticipated. And that in itself has had to make us review the direction and where we're going. I think the changes that have happened over the last two years, and again, the marketplace, the early years. We're doing a lot of work on it with the early years because quality early years education stays with you throughout your entire educational career. And I think we need to make sure that we focus on that area for our young people. I think we're heavily involved with educational research and have been for quite some time. Some of that research that we're doing, I think, will lead to big changes, big changes in curriculum, not just for our school, but I think within the education sector. And I think that that's hugely positive. For me, it's continuing to build what we're doing at the moment, but also look to make sure that we're meeting the needs of all the sectors that we serve. And that includes the staff. We're a learning community, so it includes all of us. And that's really clear. And you obviously touched on the research-led approach, and I kind of want to touch on to that next. You're obviously passionate about the continuing professional development of your staff and your, your senior leadership team. And you've invested in a member of staff whose role is to be a researcher for the school. What is their remit and why have this role on staff? Researcher in residence, really, their role is to support teachers to enable them to conduct research and to carry out research at whatever level that may be. So it might be small scale research that they're looking at within the classroom. It might be part of a larger body of teachers that are doing some work. We've started off doing research some time ago with Bill Lucas. We looked at the expansive education. And it started off with very small scale, just within our school. And the teachers were making an impact to their children and also learning themselves and enjoying what the difference it was making. So we then went out to other schools and I enlisted 30 teachers from a range of schools in the area. And we worked with Bill again, but taking that research out wider to get other people involved. 
And we didn't have the researcher on site then, so it was just working with what we had. And then when you look at what information we have now about how children learn, we have a very diverse school community, and I believe all children can learn. But to enable us to do that and to enable us for them to be successful, we have to look outside to what makes a difference to their learning. That means they have to engage with research and engage in research to make that improvement. So the role of this person is to support the teachers, but also to come to us with other research that's out there. We've looked at opportunities. They've worked with Oxford University. They've done some work with Eton, their research centre, and our teachers have been engaged with that as well. We've been York St. John University. We're doing some work with Professor Pat Preedy on some research. Some we've been working on for several years, but we've just started a new research study with our year nines, and that's as a direct result of COVID, really. We're looking at what impact that might have because we see a need and we want to see whether what our hypothesis is will make a difference. So that's, again, something that's very positive. But the behind the scenes work, the teachers don't have all the time to gather all that information. So his role is to support them on that. And research is great. I mean, I've, I've never had a, a research in residence. I've had an artist, an entrepreneur, you know, a musician in, our, you know, in residence, even a poet in residence, but a researcher in, in residence I've not heard before. It does sound like a really great area. Are many other schools doing this? Do you know of? I don't think there are many that are doing it. We led a research hub last year as part of our association with NACE, the National Association for the Able Child. Other schools came to us and we led that group to encourage them to because they didn't have the resources to do it, being able to support that. And that was with state and independent schools, because I don't think people have got the resource necessarily to commit to have a researcher on site. And possibly the teachers haven't got the experience. I think you do have to have a body and a culture, you have to embed that culture of research across the school so that it becomes part of the teacher's job description, really. It's something that our teachers do, and they want that, and they appreciate that the support that they can get for that. And is the driver, the goal for this research to better what's going on at Home Grange and the teaching and the community there? Or do you have a much wider ambition that this is going to change and influence education? I would say the primary reason is to improve what we're doing here, but it's got to be to benefit a wide, that's why it's done as part of research. We want it to impact the wider educational community that we're working with. Some of the work that we're doing, I think, can make a huge difference to young people. And if we can contribute to that, that's got to be hugely positive. How long has the research been going on and when, when are you going to be at a stage to share results? We've already produced two research journals. We're in the process of writing our third research journal. The work that we're doing at the moment, much larger scale. So we want it to be, it's over a longer period of time. So as an example, our year nines. If you take current year nines, where young people do most of their learning as young adolescents is from their peers. They've had year seven and year eight. They've had one year where they have been learning at home. So if they've been learning at home during that time, their movement is different. They haven't been able to interact with their peers. That has had an impact on their personal social development. So we're doing some work with Pat Preedy. She's done some work with very younger children, which we're engaged with, on reflexes and movement and the impact that can have on concentration, on focus, and on cognitive development. We think that that will have a difference to our older students as well. If that does, 
then we want to share that much more widely with everybody else. The work that we're going to be doing on sleep, again, we want to share that much more widely. The work we're doing with our early years, we want that to be taken much wider. And in fact, the early years one, we're already talking to ISI, ISA, IAPS, ISC about what we can do with that. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I, I, I know actually the difficulty. I've had a daughter in year eight this last 12 months, and it was enormously difficult when they're going through so much physiological, emotional, belonging change. The education absolutely suffered, not through any fault of the school, the teaching. It was just because that's their stage in their life and they need very different triggers and support to be able to get the most of it. So I'll be really interested to read that personally. I don't think their academic development suffered, but their personal and social emotional did. And that ultimately will play into their academic development, whether that's now or at a later stage. So it's that self and belonging, you know, they need esteem. And I, I saw mental health side of my daughter take a massive hit. I mean, I, it was probably the biggest out of all my children, you know, and now thankfully I'm seeing that being built up because they're back in school, but something there that needed, it needed much better thinking. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. How much of an impact does the sort of continuing professional development really have in schools? I think it depends how you go about professional development for your teachers. I believe that it has to be a long-term project. It's not something that you just send somebody on a course. A lot of time we will have professionals come in and work with staff over a period of time. So they might work with all staff and then they'll work with smaller groups and they'll do that over 12 months, sometimes two years we've worked with people. That has a huge impact because it promotes that environment of collaboration between teachers And research shows that's one of the huge things that makes a difference to children in the classroom. But that will also impact on school leadership. And you see teachers become, they're contributing to a sustainable school improvement. So I think professional development, if it's done correctly, they're committed and leadership are committed to it. It can have a huge impact. And you you have that culture within the school and it opens up possibilities for partnerships with other educational establishments, organizations. Teachers engage in professional conversations, which result in favorable outcomes for themselves and for their children. So I think professional development is key. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's getting a big distinction between professional development and training, because sometimes, and I think, you know, we, we see it in organizations across schools, is there's a lot of training and it, feels, it almost feels like it's mandated, but it feels like it's a tick box exercise rather than going, actually... How do we develop the people we have in our community and in our school to be able to get better at what they do to support our outcomes and the goals that we're saying that we're going towards? And that's, I think, a big difference. You can link it a little bit to sport, can't you? Because I think it was at Clive Woodward when he, he wrote a book, Winning, about when he talked about his philosophy with winning the Rugby World Cup many years ago. And he talked about doing things whether it's not about doing things 100% better, but it's doing 100 things 1% better. So it's that marginal gains theory that lots of people have written about. And I think that's what we're looking for in professional development. I ask my teachers, where are you on a scale of one to 10? Don't give me the answer. But if you're a five, what do you need to do to become a six? And if you're a 10, what are you doing to share that to make sure everybody else is moved up one point? 
And I think if you look at, take that approach, everybody can do that and everybody benefits. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Marginal gains make a big, big difference. You believe that ethos and the right ethos is the heart of school success. Can you explain more about this and how does it apply to you at Home Grange? I believe that our ethos is the core of what we're about. And I believe it's what distinguishes us as a school. And that's, it's very easy to say, but schools have mission statements and they have goals of what they want to achieve. They have values. I believe with us, it's more than just posters or words on the website. I believe it's lived out. To enable it to be lived out, everybody has to be passionate about that ethos and they have to live that ethos and believe it too. We believe that every child is equally valued. Every subject on the curriculum is equally valued because that allows every child to thrive and every child to succeed. Our young people, we see that in how they present themselves, how they talk about the school, how they talk to each other, how they talk to staff. It can be hard work because I think when you have a very diverse school community, you have some very, very able children and you've got children that require support. Every school talks about personalized learning, but I believe we genuinely do that. We know about our child as an individual because that's the ethos of the school. You have to believe in that to contribute to it. And so it has to be the right school for you, parents and staff. Yeah. So, I mean, would you agree that ethos is hard to measure, but easy to feel? Or can you measure ethos and success? Or do we not even entertain the fact that you can measure ethos? It's just something that you believe in or you don't. No, I think you can measure it because I think you see it. It is a, it is a feeling. It's what you get from it. And I think you measure it in the success of the young people and the staff, actually, that are within a school environment. It's a bit like buying a house, isn't it? When you buy a house, you walk through the doors and you know whether that you're going to buy that house and you're going to live in it. And I think a school gives you that same feeling. You know if it's right for you and for your child or for you to work in that environment. You need to know why that is right. So I do think you can feel it and you measure it by measuring for us the young people's success. And that that's not just grades on a piece of paper because the grades on a piece of paper open doors for them. And it's really important. Academic success is vitally important to us because our children are still judged by grades, but it only does open the door. Who they are as a person determines how far through that door they go. And that will determine their ultimate success in life. As a school, I could say, right, well, we'll just be judged on our GCSE grades. I need to look at how successful our young people are beyond their GCSEs. When I get emails from students who've just completed their A-levels, left two years ago, telling me where they're going to university, thanking the school for the support that they've given us, that's really, to me, a measure of our success because those students have decided to write to us. They want to come back and they are going on to do really successful things, but they're going on to do a very wide range of things and feel valued for that. And they still feel valued enough to write and tell us. And I think that's powerful. And we have to equip them for their success beyond here, not just for sitting those exams. And that's what we call advocacy. And advocacy is a very hard thing to do with any brand, any, any school, any company. You know, advocacy requires people in your community to stand up for you and the place without you asking them to do that. And, you know, brands struggle. And I know that schools do struggle too in terms of that voice. 
The authentic voice is massively important. I think that drives your ethos. It's not about promise. And I think maybe you've heard me talk. I use the house buying a house analogy quite a lot, like when choosing, because is it head or heart? And to me, I'm I'm not buying a TV. I'm not buying a trainer. It's an emote. I'm giving you my child. So it has to be heart-led. And heart is all around ethos, feel. The academic, the head will kick in and go, okay, does it tick these boxes? But it's a secondary decision maker. Um, so if the schools can really live and breathe, their authentic voice and their ethos, advocacy will follow because you'll have an engaged community and they'll absolutely take that on. I want to talk about the one uniqueness that you have beyond all the other pieces we've talked. And we touched on it at the top of the program. And that was your, your fascination and love for animals and the safari. Homegrown has a farm and you are a farm and you have a farm shop. I mean, ex- explain this setup and how did that come about? Okay, well, it started with hatching some, some eggs uh, one year and we decided to keep the chickens. And that was quite nice. And then we had ducks. And then I decided I was going to get two pygmy goats because my husband wouldn't let me have any pigs. So we went out and got two pygmy goats. And then we decided, well, actually, the next year, maybe we need more pygmy goats. So we went and got another two. And then we found this wonderful organization called the Junior Pig Association who would give you two sows. They would give you two middle white sows. And the idea was that you would bring them on, you would teach farm to fork, and you would bring these sows on and they would have piglets. And you would then take those piglets to market and teach everybody that process. So we had two pigs. We called them Hope and Glory because it had to, we had to start with Holm Grange. And our first two pigs were Horatio and Goliath because they had to have names beginning with H and G. And these just became very much part of the life of the school. And one of the research studies that one of our teachers did with a less able math set was, I'm going to start every math lesson in the farm. Will it make a difference to their attitude to maths? It was incredible the difference it made. So the farm started as something small and it grew because I then thought, well, wouldn't it be great if they could see the animals being born? We taught farm to fork. We've had turkeys. We've had the eggs. We've hatched them from eggs. We've brought them on. Then we've auctioned them at Christmas. And my groundsman has, has dealt with them and we've, we've eaten them for Christmas meal. The farm to fork pigs weren't as successful because that was quite an experience, our first farrowing, and it didn't quite go to plan. We have had three or four that we have taken to market. The first pig we took to market was quite hilarious because I read that you had to take them and they had to be clean. So we gave it a bubble bath before we took him to market and scrubbed him down, but and then discovered you didn't need to do that at all. We've had five pygmy goats born on site as well. The young people love it. I've got an autistic young man. He joined the school. He hated rugby. So he goes, instead of on his rugby lesson, instead he goes into the farm with the groundsman and works with the animals. We've got animal care is now part of our curriculum and they do a BTEC in animal care. We have polytunnels and the pig bedding goes on the beds and they grow the veg. Just put the shallots in for pickling, made the pickled onion chutney. And we've also brewing a second fermentation of the whole grange wine from the grapes we've grown in our polytunnels. And the farm shop, we teach business studies. So why shouldn't the children learn from a very young age how to run a business? And it started off as a farm shop, but then we want the business studies students to say, well, what can you do with that? 
So we also have a recycling plastics recycling center. The idea is that they're going to produce products which they will then sell through recycling plastic, shredding the plastic and then molding it into products that they might do something with later on. The farm contributes in a huge way, so many ways, socially and emotionally, curriculum, academically. It's massive what the contribution it makes. If I go down to the farm at lunchtime, I've always got students in the farm, whether they are young students with their teachers or the senior students, whether they're in year 70 or year 11, boys and girls, they love it. They love the animals and what you can get from them. So it's very powerful. I'm completely sold. Honestly, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm looking at where my kids are at the different stages. And yeah, I mean, I have my, my, my 10-year-old who's, who's in year five and we're currently looking. Do you have any buses from High Wycombe? Yes, we can get one. <laughs> no, I can put one on. <laughs> I'm being serious here. I mean, see, he's an outdoors. We're getting him a bearded dragon for his birthday in two weeks' time. He lives in the pond. Everything's outdoors. And yeah, we're, we're, when you look at it, you know, I'm a great believer of choosing the right school for each of my children. And, you know, there's no prize that I have four children and four schools. Uh, well, what, one of them's just left. She's about to go to uni. But, you know, it has to be right. So I'm going to arrange to come and see you. Do, please do. I want to come see the farm shop, but I want to come and see the school. It just sounds amazing. No, you should. We call it a farm. I put it into perspective. We have all these animals. I have a student who has a farm. He comes on and says, that's not a farm. I've got 600 acres. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We have a farm. (laughs) For the definition of the supply and the learning about animals, you have it. And I will say we also took some students to a country fair. And they showed the goat and one of our goats won. And they also entered a sausage making competition and they beat the butchers. So it um, was very go. good. It's, it's life experiences. They're solving real world problems and getting Absolutely. the real world. I think it's phenomenal. I think what you're doing, you are an inspiration. I wasn't expecting to talk about farm shops, pigs, camels at Christmas, um, as well as obviously developing a great forward thinking curriculum driving change. It's been a great session. So thanks ever so much for taking the time out. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.